CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. There are a few thinkers on the right over the past few years who I have paid closer attention to than our guest on today's show, who is Saurav Mari, founder and editor of Compact Magazine and the author of the brand new book, Tyranny Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Saurabh has an interesting intellectual journey, which he has discussed at great length, but he, in recent years, has become one of the leading thinkers of the so-called New Right, the post-liberal movement, the national conservative movement, to a lesser extent, or at least that's the label that I would use, that Saurabh wouldn't necessarily use, but interrelated parts here. And it's very easy to focus on the culture war aspect of that broader realignment that many of us have been putting some intellectual teeth behind for a number of years now by which the Republican Party might become a slightly more working class party, perhaps more than slightly working class party, a party that actually speaks for the economic and cultural interests, not merely the cultural interests, but also the tangible economic interests of its increasingly middle and working class voter base. To go back to 2016, this is what Donald Trump exposed like an earthquake. He exposed this great, great chasm between the predominantly neoliberal, laissez-faire, market fundamentalist interests of the Republican Party's donor base and the much more practical, tangible, less ideological concerns of the middle and working class voter base, voters who didn't necessarily care to read all these roundtable seminars about the glory of eye pencil and various other theories of Adam Smith, invisible hands, comparative advantage, blah, blah, blah. No, most voters, it turns out, and we saw this in the exit polling data from 2016 and in subsequent elections since then, most voters on the right are really actually just trying to get by. Do they want socialism? No, of course not. Are they interested in free market fundamentalism, the likes of which we saw, for example, in Paul Ryan in the 2012 Republican presidential platform? No, certainly not. And Soreb has been one of the leading thinkers trying to put some some muscle on the bones there, trying to flesh out what this looks like. His new book, Tyranny, Inc., takes a sweeping view of private sector America and how, contrary to what many on the right have long thought, it is not just the government that can be that can be tyrannical. Absolutely. Government power, authoritarianism can 100 percent be tyrannical. As I have said publicly many times, I keep on my desk every single day a rock that a rabbi once gave me that he's personally smuggled out of the crematorium of, of Auschwitz. So no one can ever say that I am not closely attuned to the problems of governmental power concentrated run amok 
But corporate power run amok is also a huge threat, as we have seen only increasingly in recent years, indeed in recent weeks, with, for example, the Missouri versus Biden litigation, as we've previously discussed on this show. So without further ado, we're going to take a really quick commercial break here. and We are really delighted to bring on our guest, my friend, Saurabh Amari. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Josh Hammer Show. So welcome back. We are thrilled to bring back one of relatively few two-time guests so far on The Josh Hammer Show. That is my buddy, Saurabh Amari. He is the founder and editor of Compact Magazine and the author of the brand new book, now available everywhere, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Saurabh, thank you so much for joining us and welcome back. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. You bet, of course. So, but let's start a little broad before we kind of going in here. So I've been following your work very closely for years. Uh, you, I think you probably know that you're one of only a handful of people who's basically every writing I try to read. I can only say that about a handful of people. So I'm very familiar with kind of your career trajectory. I think your critics, like they said, you've kind of been all over the map. I think that's a little uncharitable. You've certainly been on a consistent path, I think, for the past five, six, seven years along that line. So let's kind of start there. Talk to us about where Tyranny Inc., this notion of private sector tyranny, how do you kind of fit this into your broader kind of intellectual journey and really what you've been thinking about and how you've emerged into who you are today, especially over the past, you know, call it six, seven years, kind of the post-Wall Street journal era, if you will. So I launched my career at the heart of, you know, establishment conservatism, as you know, Josh, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the sort of bastion of of free trade and low marginal uh, tax rates and so on. Um, I greeted initially the Trump phenomenon uh, with kind of a mix of befuddlement and anger. Like I was working at the Wall Street Journal Europe and preaching low taxes Meanwhile, back home, our own party was embracing someone who bucked all of those orthodoxies. You know, he supported entitlement. uh, He supported maintaining entitlements like Social Security and Medicare. He uh, even hinted at a at a public option in healthcare in a debate with uh, Ted Cruz and the base seemed to love it. But over time, I came to, you know, came to my senses pretty quickly as far as kind of anti-Trump pundits go. you know, by 2017, 18, I, I was beginning to see why a lot of especially working class Americans had turned to Trump. Uh, as you know, he won the highest share of union households marginally for a Republican since Ronald Reagan in 1984. And that was mostly because he I, I now think he mostly emphasized, you know, um, this profound sense of precarity and insecurity in American life that has emerged over the past generation or two. 
um, free trade hollowing out manufacturing centers, the loss of good, stable union jobs, the sense that, um, you know, you're one health care crisis away from, you know, massive health care debt, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it just spoke to these in a very plain way. Um, and so my project over the past few years has been to um, try to articulate a conservatism fit for those Trumpian impulses. And I think I consider you a, a, an ally in that endeavor. And in a way, the 2020 election ratified that project. That is that Trump not only consolidated the white working class, which he had won in 2016, but he also uh, expanded into working class people of color, made it made encroachments among working class people of color. Um, and so that this book, Trinity Inc., was conceived on election night 2020 when oh, wow. we didn't know we didn't know that Trump had lost. But already the early polling had suggested that the Republican Party was now the vehicle for the multiracial working class, which sort of instantaneously became a buzzword that night, if you remember. Um, so I've been pushing more and more toward a kind of solidaristic politics. My last book was more spiritual or, or focused on spiritual spirituality and tradition. Um, that came out in 2021. And the idea there was that actually the loss of limits and regulation actually makes us less free at the level of the individual, right? So if you if you don't have a strong tradition you're bound to, then you're sort of swayed this way and that by whatever comes along. Uh, in Tyranny Inc., I argue that the same thing happens at the level of political economy, that um, in fact, the loss of regulation, the loss of countervailing power against the power of just large employers and corporations was sold to us in the name of individual autonomy, but has paradoxically left us less, less free. Um, but it's also born of a kind of disillusionment because I, I wrote that in 2020. I wrote the proposal for the book, all excited to write a manifesto. It was supposed to be a manifesto type book for a working class conservatism. Maybe, you know, for a new generation, something like the book that Raihan and Ross Douthat wrote called um, Sam's Club Conservatives. But as I said about, you know, reporting the book, and it's primarily a reported book, I realized that like the stumbling blocks to or the obstacles to working class flourishing in this country um, are often have to do with with a kind of invisible, less visible market-based coercion in the workplace, in the marketplace, et cetera, that, that is not the subject of much uh, uh, Republican concern. Not even the populace, really. Um, you know, the, a lot of the neo-populism, especially starting in 2020, 2021, started to veer toward only cultural concerns. Now, I'm like a culture warrior, and I don't apologize for that. But not everything that ails American life has to do with wokeness. So I ended up deciding to write a book that's more repertorial, that gives a tour of our political economy as ordinary people experience it from the bottom, Um and to show that, in fact, our supposedly non-coercive societies is suffused by coercion. It's just that coercion is meted out by private actors. And precisely because it happens in a private sphere, we can't subject that coercion to democratic give and take, to legal justiciability, et cetera. So that's a kind of uh, trying to fit it into my larger project. 
Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. So I want to zoom out a little bit here. We'll talk about kind of the state of the right of the GOP, whether they get it, so to speak, on a lot of these issues. I think I think that's a conversation that I definitely want to have with you. But let's kind of dive into some of the more details of what you're talking about here. So I remember a conversation that I had with you at the second National Conservatives Conference, NACCON 2, so to speak, in, in Orlando. This was almost two years ago at this point. And one thing that I think you and I kind of nodding our heads said to each other was that a lot of the boomers were kind of railing against you know cultural marxism but one thing that you could that you could tell about the the generational gap was that some of, of, of a younger generation you me you know a handful of, of, of our colleagues and fellow travelers uh, to be clear so-called cultural marxism wokeism whatever you want to call it is a deeply pernicious threat but we were railing just as often if not more often against neoliberalism and part of the problem that you know, some of us in kind of post-liberal, new right NACCON circles, and I speak very much for myself here, part of the reason I think, or part of the problem that some of us have sometimes is we rail against these broader concepts without really defining the terms, without being very clear exactly what it is that we're decrying. So you've covered a lot of economic history here. I mean, going back to, to, to you know, FDR, New Deal, even before that, you know, you and Michael Lind have done some real deep dives into the economic history of 21st, 20th century America, excuse me. What exactly is neoliberalism? When did it become a bipartisan phenomenon? And can you talk a little bit more about the various ways specifically in which you think the GOP in particular and the right have gone too far? By the way, there's a good generational distinction between between your and my generation and it's sort of older conservatism trying to grapple with populism and nationalism and so forth. Um, So in order to define neoliberalism, it's worthwhile just starting with liberalism, at least in the economic sphere. Um, Economic liberalism, by which we don't mean leftism or progressivism, but rather the ideology, economic ideology that emerged in the late 18th century, I would say, um, and then really flourished in the 19th century, is the idea that um, that the market system, uh, first of all, is a system and that it should be left mostly autonomous. That is, that most of its workings are are optimal on their own because of the fact of competition and the fact that the price signal uh over which no individual market actor in a market has um, control ensures that no market actor can act coercively or tyrannically. Therefore, leave the market system alone, except for one area, which is uh, laissez-faire or classical liberal theory allows. It allows for antitrust. There's a possibility of one market actor becoming monopolistic, and there even classical liberal theory allows for antitrust action. But other than that, largely speaking, the market system is optimal. Now, that obviously was sort of true, sort of true in the late 18th century um, when Adam Smith was writing, for example, because you had an, a capitalist economy that was defined by many, many sellers and many, many buyers. In, typically, the sellers were all independent yeomen or artisans or mechanics, as they called them back then, and they owned their own tool or their own tools or their own land. So it really was the kind of economy that somewhat descri- that is somewhat of the economy that's described in in laissez-faire theory. The problem is that by the 19th century, mid-19th century, the Industrial Revolution had happened. And under industrial conditions, what happens is that most markets actually become quite concentrated. Not monopolies necessarily, which again, classical liberal theory was prepared to act against, but in systems of oligopoly, which is just a few sellers in each market. 
And when that happens, when you have just a few dominant actors in a given market, the price of a, of a good or a commodity or including the price of labor power, which we call the wage, is no longer this crystalline expression of supply and demand, but rather is basically just what the few big actors say it has is it is. In other words, price becomes an index of relative bargaining power um, and they can push their way around because you know, on their classical liberal theory, they should be left autonomous. And they did. And that model of capitalism coincided with lots of bankruptcies, lots of currency turbulence, et cetera, et cetera, culminating in the in the Great Depression. Then you had a period of like a respite, which is the social democratic New Deal order. Set that aside for now. We can get back to that. That model was dismantled later by the neoliberals. And what's the new in neoliberalism? It's not that ju- it's not just that the state should leave the market alone. Rather, it's that the market should inc- should increasingly be the benchmark for how we judge the state. Right. In other words, market type mentalities and practices suffuse government as well. So that, for example, more and more goods are privatized because we're told that. You know, the private sector manages everything better and more efficiently. Um, You know, lots of issues that were up for democratic contestation between employers and employees, et cetera, get removed from democratic contestation because we're told that the market knows best. So, for example, free trade decisions, et cetera. So that's the difference between uh, between those two. Liberalism just wants to leave the market alone, which is problematic enough. But neoliberalism goes further and says, the market should ultimately shape society and state as well. Right. I mean, I think back partially, I, you know, I went to University of Chicago for law school and they're infamous for their law and economics curriculum. Right. And I think back to law school and like the number of times that I heard efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. I mean, we used to joke among my student colleagues, my my classmates, that the real F word at Chicago was not the four letter F word, but quote unquote fairness. <laughs> and, you know, from an economist perspective, this makes sense. Right. The economist naturally based on classical economic theory, going back to Smith and all of that. They want to maximize, you know, you know, individual actors. That's homo economicus and all of that. But, but politics is fundamentally more than efficiency maximizing things. I mean, I mean, politics going back to, to forever. I mean, to the beginning of governments among men, Aristotle, or even pre-Greek, if you want to go back that far, we have always understood that there is more to politics than any one thing. It's the same way that it really that the whole kind of trust the science crowd errors as well. Politics is not just about science. The same way that it's not just about economics. It's fundamentally about the aims. I would say I, I, I think the U.S. Constitution preamble basically gets it. Right. I mean, substantive justice, the common good, the general welfare of the national interest of the whole polity, right? And flourishing individuals and communities. So you're clearly, clearly aren't onto something here. We're going to take a very quick break here. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
Josh Hammer Show. So, Saurabh, you're intimating there one issue that I know you're you're very passionate about, which is this notion of of private sector labor unions, which you mentioned Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill. You know, these even these classical liberal thinkers were not per se opposed, actually, to private sector labor unions. Public sector labor unions, more complicated story for sure. But when did the right just totally throw private sector labor under the bus and how can we start to make inroads again with private sector labor unions? I think that's a key question that I don't have very good answers to, frankly. Very good. So uh, just to return to what we spoke about, uh, we said classical liberalism, state leave the market alone, neoliberalism, uh, market remake the state in its own image. So what came in between, what came in between was in Europe was called the social democratic or Christian democratic order. And what was in the United States called the new deal order. And it addressed the, the crises of, you know, pure liberal capitalism, which were real enough, right? Because uh, wages were kept so low that workers couldn't afford their own goods. And so that that created a demand crisis in the United States that actually made even though put the wealthy even uh, sort of on, in crisis. Um, the way the New Dealers mainly addressed that was by enacting the, the National Labor Relations Act, otherwise known as the Wagner Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act or the FLSA. The Wagner Act is the most important component. What it did was where hitherto the U.S. government had said it was in some ways actually hostile to private economy unions, thenceforth, Congress actually said we're going to encourage private economy unionization and collective bargaining. The idea is not much actually different than than antitrust uh, uh, enforcement, right? In the In the classical model, many, many sellers compete with each other and many, many buyers compete with each other as well. And that creates the supposed tension that creates equilibrium in the market and, and ensures that, you know, uh, no one actor can, uh, can put one over other, other actors. Um, and again, laissez-faire types are, are prepared to use state power to, to break up monopolies. In some markets, though, we've realized, especially the labor market, and especially in oligopolistic situations where there's only a few buyers of labor, meaning employers, and many, many sellers of labor, workers going up against them, any individual worker is pretty powerless, right? It's a relative uh, bargaining power issue, and they're much, much weaker. And because there's always someone who's more desperate willing to work for less, uh, that gives the employers enormous unjust coercive power over workers. So... The, the New Deal empowered workers to team up together when going up against buyers of labor power or employers. And this is called countervailing power. The idea was that um, instead of the competition just being on one side of the market among sellers or among buyers, we would bolster competition of sellers going up against buyers. And so that's the sort of the simple idea behind countervailing power, which I think in my reading is at the heart of the New Deal. And the result was, you know, we can get into why that situation came about or why it didn't last. But the bottom line is that the New Dealer New Deal order created, you know, roughly three decades of broad prosperity, lots and lots of things that your parents and grandparents came to take for granted, like, you know, more limited working hours, uh, vacations for workers, healthcare, retirement, et cetera, these hallmarks of working class life 
came about during that time. And it was definitely a very, very innovative time in the American economy. So don't don't listen to people who say, oh, it's stolid and stale. No, that's when we had the nuclear age. That's when we had the atomic age and so on, which you can see portrayed in the movie Oppenheimer. So that's the idea. So how did we how did we lose it? Well, um, if basically neoliberalism came right, around right. Um, and, um, you know, gradually neoliberals, by the way, there were complete fringe figures in like the 1940s, and right. 50s and 60s, Hayek, et cetera, were all seen as like crank. Even business uh, leaders were believed that this New Deal model was like that's how the serious consensus way to do business. But then in the 1970s, then that model hit some crises, which I think are exaggerated. Like many of them resolved themselves. The oil issue just went away by the 1980s on its own, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them could have been reformed. But the point is that it was not this sort of epoch defining crisis that people define it as. Anyway, that opportunity of the crisis of the New Deal order gave an opening to first Carter and then Reagan in the United States and Thatcher in Britain to really tap into these ideas of the new liberals, which hadn't gotten better with age, like, you know, fine wine. But they just fit into a moment in a very um, auspicious way for them. And the result, especially on the right, is a Republican Party that's pretty remained very hostile to labor unions. And that's pushed labor unions further and further into the arms of the Democratic Party right. so that, you know, in, in the 1970s, Nixon was competitive on the labor vote. But today, you know, very few Republicans get um uh, labor endorsement, but the fundamental logic of labor unions has not changed, you know, since the time of the New Deal and countervailing power. Right. I, I mean, I mean, just to be very blunt here, there, there was nothing inherently problematic whatsoever, inherently, with the idea of a private sector labor union. Again, this goes back to the most rudimentary of all economic principles about, about collective bargaining, when it, which is necessary when you have countervailing powers. You just described again, Smith, Mill, all these classical liberal icons had nothing whatsoever ideologically against private sector labor. The problem that that I have, there's been a lot of solid intellectual work done, you, Orrin Cass, a lot of ha others have done really good work trying to kind of recover this tradition that the right has not always been reflexively hostile to private sector labor unions. But, you know, then when I try to look at who's guiding a lot of these private sector labor unions, you know, these people kind of want me in gulags, it seems like many times, and not always. And to be clear that, you know, that it's kind of self-reinforcing and it kind of takes us down this kind of feedback loop. So I, I struggle with how to get us out of this feedback loop, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I give lots and lots of examples in the book of, you know, flagrant abuses of working people in this country. Uh, you know, you know, this one very well is the abuse of commercial arbitration in the workplace, something that was meant for bar, you know merchants of relatively equal bargaining power right. has been expanded to the workplace where if you have a grievance against your employer you can't sue them uh, you have to go through this privatized court where the corporation basically sets the rules and it's not rational for you because it's much it's much more expensive to go through the process uh, than whatever it is that you seek to recover so by barring you from class actions it more or less means that you can't seek justice at all to be made whole um just to give one example and you know frankly i mean it's very this one of the big disappointments of the trump administration was that it backed private arbitration to the hilt um including you know obviously justice gorsuch but also the solicitor general of trump and the, and the department of labor um so then then republicans wondered like why is the democrat why is big labor so attached to um the Democratic Party. Well, it's because it's 
it always gotten it's often gotten the back of the hand right. from GOP. But there's no reason it has to right. be that way forever, you know. For, because it is bad for labor too. That because right. if if labor is so dependent on the Democratic Party, then it's not independent anymore, and it can't exert independent pressure. Right. right, it gets pushed around by the Democrats. So, like as my friend Michael Lynn points out, if you go to the home the Twitter page of the head of the AFL CIO right now, or at least for a long time, the top pinned tweet was something that said like. You know, labor means maximum abortion rights. I can't remember what the exact wording is. But, you know, if you think about it, lots of the people who are the rank and file in the AFL-CIO don't share that view. They might not be pro-life the way I am, but they don't want, like, you know, abortion in the ninth you know month of the pregnancy. But why do they have to put up with with the Democratic left? Because they know that at least they'll get something from them. Yeah, you know, you know, actually, and sorry sorry to interrupt, but when you're talking here, the the example that I think of, and it's kind of a provocative example, but I know you're probably going to agree with it, is I'm thinking actually of a Russia situation. And let me kind of play that out a little more. You know, a lot of kind of neoliberals, kind of foreign policy establishment types um, say that, you know, Russia is 1000% to blame here. And to be clear, obviously, the majority of the blame does lie with Vladimir Putin. He has invaded another sovereign country. All of that is true. But on the other hand, looking at a global stage, you know, what has the United States bipartisan foreign policy establishment done consistently since the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, they've given Russia the back of the hand and sought to expand NATO ever and ever closer to the Russian border. Right. So it's kind of this whole back of the hand. You're going to you know, go right into your into your enemy. It's, it's, it's a similar dynamic. And I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback to that in the comment section. But but it, but but it, but it's OK, because I think it, I think the analogy does hold. So, Saurabh, let's let's take it back to the book here. And, you know, one theme that I have been emphasizing a lot in my writings and commentary over the past few years, which I know is a commentary and knows a theme that you have as well, especially being the former New York Post op-ed editor at a time of the Hunter Biden laptop fiasco, is this notion of, uh, you know, what I've referred to as the collapse of the private public distinction. We basically kind of get this one blob where where this purported distinction between state action and private action, which really is the whole theoretical undergird for neoliberalism is that you have this very sharp divide between the public and state action and and and, and private action on the one hand this divide before our eyes has really collapsed and on the tech issue in particular a lot of folks on the right i think are starting to intuit that but the way they frame the big tech objection stills oftentimes in in liberal terms and liberal phraseology such as kind of infringing speech and things like that so are you optimistic about kind of a lot of these themes because you're obviously going way beyond speech and i think the right should go way beyond speech towards things like what we're talking about here collective bargaining countervailing power are, are you optimistic about this broader trajectory or do you fear that it might stop with kind of more liberal paradigm based complaints in the tech space in particular? Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit down right now about that. <laughs> stuff. I've just seen it for so long. Right. I was, as you know, I was in the thick of the Hunter issue and I was like, well, here we go. Section 230 reform. Right. Or not to get into the weeds, but just just defang the power of a few oligarchs, whatever their ideology might be, whether they agree with me or they don't. To, to be able to sort of dictate who can be a person online and who can't, um, you know, to, to think about things, for example, as a common carrier, as yeah. Justice, you know, that famous Marxist Justice Clarence Thomas has suggested. Um, but the Republican Party, like, uses these issues, you know, it complains about, you know, hedge funds and private equity for being woke on Fox News and on, you know, on the floor of the House at congressional hearings, but then like when it comes to passing laws, for the most part, 
it's pretty Wall Street friendly or what it complains about big tech power, but it won't really touch Section 230 or, you know, basically the law that allows these big tech companies to uh, have so much power over the rest of us. Um, So I'm a little bit burned. I was much more sort of rah, rah, circa 2019, 2020, because I was this stuff was new and you could see the Republican Party. Um, But that said, okay, look, as we said, a growing share of working class people are continuing to rally to the GOP. And if the GOP wants to keep those votes, working class people aren't dumb. If it wants to keep those voters, it'll have to deliver concretely for them. And it can't just be, you know, this kind of culture war stuff. Again, some of the culture war is totally legitimate. Some of the culture stuff actually helps legitimate the kind of capitalist power we're talking about, you know, uh, like, every company at its union busting meeting says, hi, I'm your union buster. I use she, her pronouns, and I come to you from the traditional lands of the alone people. So that, you know, is perfectly legitimate to attack, but there has to be like policy moves. Right. And a little bit, uh, I don't know, I'm, I've, t- I'm tired of hoping and not seeing much. That said, there's a trio of senators that I think are serious about this. Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, and J.D. Vance, you know, do they speak about these issues in exactly the same way that the left wants them to? No. Are they as exactly where the left wants them to be on all the issues? No, they're more gradualist because they have more complicated constituencies to bring along. But they're trying. And it's kind of unfortunate when whenever they take a step in the right direction, progressives who are on these kind of labor issues will be like, hmm, but he didn't say that. Hmm, but he didn't quite say the same thing as I would. And it's like, come on. Who do you have on, you know, if you want to forge a new consensus, it's a little bit more pro-worker, a little bit more, you know, social democratic, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You know, that's the best we've got on the right. And and, and, I, and I, I just wish some of the kind of labor progressives would take yes for an answer. You know, I wish more people paid attention to what Marco Rubio has been writing and saying and putting into legislation or attempting. He arguably even more than Josh Hawley, who you and I are both big fans of, I think. I mean, Rubio Rubio is pretty. The book is the the new book he has rips into the GOP donor class more ferociously than Bernie Sanders would. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate because a lot of people think of Marco in terms of his 2016 presidential campaign, and they still associate him with the more kind of, you know, gun-toting neoconservative foreign policy. But when it comes to political economy on the domestic front, uh, you know, Mike Needham, his former chief of staff, has really done amazing work. Mike, I think it's since left that office. The credit goes to Rubio himself, ultimately, obviously. So he's been a really, really clarion thinker on, on many of these issues here. Well, I can't help but interject here that in Washington on September 12, uh, I have a book event uh, with Senator Rubio at the National Pest Club. You can find it on my Twitter account at Sarabamari if you want to join. If you're in, if you live in the swamp, so let's bring it home here. So I tend to be somewhat pessimistic like you. I tend to be also a little more optimistic, I think. Maybe, maybe just slightly. I mean, I, I I hear where you're coming from. Obviously, on the other hand, I think back to my. My first year of law school summer, I was a law clerk for Mike Lee when he was the antitrust subcommittee uh, ranking head member. And the kind of joke in the office back then was that that there was no such thing as any kind of corporate action that Mike Lee would oppose. So that was not his actual stance, but it was kind of like a joke, right? 
And that's just not true anymore. He's actually becoming a very thoughtful leader when it comes to antitrust issues, which is kind of his, his legal background. Is he where Josh Hawley is? No. But he's moved a lot. You know, someone like Ted Cruz, who came of political age during the Tea Party era, was kind of the, the political embodiment of the Tea Party. He has emerged as someone who is very thoughtful on Section 230 issues, you know, antitrust. He's not me. He's not quite where Mike Lee is, but he's somewhere in the conversation, at least. And Rubio, we've discussed as well here. So I see some causes for optimism here. So what has to happen, whether it's kind of just donor question, institutionally, grassroots perspective, what would you like to see put into place more across all of those fears to help move the ball forward as far as aligning what I think you and I both understand is this still existing chasm between the working class voter base and the donor base of the American right, which is this chasm that has existed for years and years. Trump exploded through it. He exposed it. And yet here we are seven years later after 2016, and it still exists, unfortunately. Uh, several things. One, uh, build up personnel that is conversant with political economy beyond just the sort of libertarian cliches, frankly. Uh, I think that would be very, very important. Second, I think if labor finds a more independent voice separate from the Democratic Party, then, you know, those those voters who are already voting for the Republican Party will also find like an organized voice within the Republican Party. There is a labor caucus within the Republican Party. As I'm saying this, it's going to sound wild. And I can hear already like the snickers of labor progressives who are like, yeah, good luck. But if if the Republican Party makes real gestures toward winning over uh, workers, you will have it's just how politics works. If you reward people, they're going to come along. You reward people, you win friends. And so what will that do? It'll just allow for sort of normal, small D Democratic coalition politics to work better. Right now, the Republican Party has three elements, two of which have an enormous amount of say within it, but one that doesn't. The two that have power are a few billionaire type donors. And then even more important in some ways is like regional and small capital, which arguably is the most hostile to like New Deal type ideas, political economy, even thinking about political economy is something that small and regional capital, they're great people, they support their communities, but they have their own interests and it's much more kind of ferociously anti-union. But you also have that third, which is the workers in the, that are increasingly voting for the party. And so how does democratic coalitioning work? It's, it's a politician goes to these three camps and builds a consensus among them. It won't leave everyone happy. Everyone will be a little bit disappointed, but it's more reflective of who's actually voting for the party. As it is, if it stays on its current course of just essentially winning working class voters, but only servicing the other two groups, those working class voters will either fall to the Democrats or worse, they'll become a kind of they'll sink back to cynical apathy. Oh, they're all the same. It makes no difference. I voted for Trump. I did this and that. It made no difference. My every you know, my paycheck's getting cut. My job is precarious. I don't have health care. F it all. So. You know, if we don't want that to happen, you know, Republicans need to take steps toward labor concretely so that labor finds an organized voice within the Republican coalition. It's supremely well said, as is the whole book for that matter. So once again, the book is Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Its author is Sorb Mari, who has kindly joined us in conversation for the past half hour or so. So thank you so much, my friend. It's always good to see you. Likewise, buddy.
that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Josh Hammer Show. It's Ah! Hammer Time. Go! The Biden administration wants more DEI in Ethiopia. DEI, of course, short for diversity, equity, and inclusion, has become the tip of the spear of the woke ideology. It is this buzzword, this phrase that seeps into seemingly every public and private institution in America, and now it seems as far flung as Ethiopia. It's basically the idea that you are your identity, that you as an individual can be easily reduced to the color of your skin and various other arbitrary traits about you. It is deeply toxic. It is horrific to everything this country stands for, of course. And yet the Biden administration is trying to spread it, not just to first world Europe, but to Ethiopia. Why? Why in the world would you want more DEI in Ethiopia? Of all the problems affecting America on the world stage, from the rise of China to what is happening in Russia and Ukraine to Iran and Saudi Arabia making closer ties with China leading the way and everything that is happening in our own hemisphere with Hezbollah and all of that. You think that the Biden administration should be promoting DEI in Ethiopia? In the Horn of Africa? It speaks to the priorities of the Biden regime, which fundamentally, at the end of the day, does not care about American safety, America's standing in the world, or any of the things that good statesmen ought to care about when it comes to foreign policy. They care about spreading their deeply leftist, woke ideology by any means necessary to the furthest corners of the world. That is what the Biden administration, USAID, Antony Blinken, the whole State Department apparatus, that is what they call for. Kellogg's woke workplace programs are illegal. So America First Legal says Kellogg's wants to have 25% underrepresented talent at the management level by 2025, and they are running fellowship programs that are explicitly available to only racial minorities. America First Legal is a group that was started in the aftermath of the Trump administration. It's headed by Stephen Miller, who I personally am a huge fan of. Your mileage may vary, but I know Stephen a bit and think quite highly of him. America First Legal is a very effective conservative legal organization for what they do. The broader nonprofit legal right of center has been totally dominated in recent decades by a lot of libertarian leaning shops that tend to sue to advance somewhat arcane in the weeds libertarian-leaning constitutional law doctrine. America First, since it was founded in 2021 or so, has been hitting these issues real hard. So good for them. They're suing Kellogg's. They're suing Target, which has been in the news, of course, for the tuck-friendly children, clothing and all of that garbage. The broader point here 
is what the hell is happening to corporate America? What the hell is happening to corporate America to make them go so far in the tank for explicitly racist, racial only, only underrepresented minority fellowship programs here, which, yes, obviously they are explicitly illegal under t- uh, various provisions of the, of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, t- Title VI potentially comes to, uh, immediately to mind here or Title VII. I mean, a million ways to, to, to try to sue these bastards for what they're trying to do here. So, again, good for America first legal. But ultimately, it's only the threat of litigation. It is only the threat of litigation that will make these people shut the hell up, get back in line and focus on maximizing shareholder value, for God's sake. More states expect schools to keep trans girls off girls team as K through 12 classes resume. So Kansas, North Dakota and Wyoming are three states that have new laws in place restricting transgender athletes. The total number of states now with some sort of restrictions pertaining to biological sex in K through 12 athletics is now 23 states, almost half the country now laudably, commendably has laws that would prohibit quote unquote transgender girls, a.k.a. biological men from competing against girls. What you're really seeing here is finally, finally, some concrete pushback against the furthest reaches, furthest reaches of the woke ideology. This stuff to me has been the lowest of all low hanging fruits for years now. I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with activists, think tank folks, journalists, donors themselves. And I have said over and over again, Starting with the transgender sports issue, this should be the lowest of all low-hanging fruit because there is not a damned single individual in this country who looks at Lena Thomas or whatever the hell we are calling that biological male who won all of these NCAA swimming. There is not a damned sane individual in America who's going to look at that and conclude that that is somehow fair and the kind of values that we should be instilling in those female competitors who have just been stripped of their dignity, their honor, and their viability of competing as fellow athletes. No one in their right mind would look at that and say that that is a fair situation. The NCAA has a bit of a ways to go on this particular front, unfortunately, but there are now many states that are leading the way in K-12. through Credit to Kansas, North Dakota, and Wyoming for being three of the most recent additions to that front. More Americans are ending up homeless at a record rate. The data so far in 2023, homelessness up roughly 11% from 2022. That represents by far the biggest annual increase in the history of us having data on this front. Here is the real problem as far as I see it. We don't have any good solutions. I was talking about this with a friend this past weekend with with a friend who lives in Colorado. Anyone who's spent time in Colorado knows that Denver has an absolutely horrific homeless problem, especially over the past decade or so. It seems from my perspective that that had a lot to do with with the legalization of marijuana. But that's that's a conversation for another day. But homelessness unambiguously, again, we have the stats here is clearly on the rise. The problem is that no one knows what the hell to do about it. And in fact, the lefties are drawing many of the exact wrong reasons, which is free housing, you know, grossly subsidized housing for all, free this, free that, free that. I'm not reflexively opposed to some sort of solution here that might entail some sort of greater governmental involvement. What I fear is that every time in this particular space, when it comes to urban decline and really above all homelessness, The government just doesn't know what the hell to do about this, nor does the private sector for that matter. So that to me is why I am so frustrated by this particular malady. The real crisis here, of course, is that only exacerbating the homelessness 
crisis that is affecting urban America is that you have these waves and waves of illegal aliens shipping across the border. States like the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, New York City under Eric Adams, they both declared states of emergency because of all the illegal aliens flying there. So you take that and you combine it with this annualized average of an 11% increase in homelessness. That is a recipe for continued urban decline. Then you throw the metastasis of Soros prosecutors, for God's sake, into the mix. And yeah, you are looking at a horrible, horrible situation for urban America, especially in many of our leading blue states. Finally, Illinois Supreme Court clears the way for states' sharp gun limits. Illinois residents are no longer allowed to purchase many types of semi-automatic weapons, including AR-15 style rifles, a.k.a. the most popular rifle in America. I lived in Illinois for three years. I, I went to law school there. I, I didn't even try to get a concealed carry permit, actually, when I lived in Illinois. I waited until I moved to Texas after graduating law school to get my concealed carry license and to start buying up on guns and ammunition. I, I, if I recall, I had a friend or two who managed to get a concealed carry license in Chicago, but it is not by any means easy to do. I'm not even remotely surprised that they're going to start going ahead and trying to ban various popular semi-automatic weapons, AR-15s. At some point, the Supreme Court is going to have to wait in here. There's really just no other way around this. Going back to the 2008 case, the D.C. versus Heller case, the phrase that Justice Scalia, in his majority opinion, the phrase that he used to establish that, for example, handguns could not be banned was that if a gun is, quote, in common use. That was the phrase that he used to say that that firearm that fits that description is worthy of constitutional protection. But the court has really not done a whole lot of weighing in on what that means since then. At some point, they're going to have to wait in here. 